Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church. Today we complete our series on the Psalms. Um, you know, when we planned this series, we had no idea of any of the experiences that we have experienced over the last months and especially this last week. Um, and today we, we, we end this, this series, and in light of this week, um, you know, we went into the, to the weekend and preparing for this, uh, this final message on the Psalms and this, this uh, message for today, just wondering, uh, it, it, should we change the plan? Is this going to be appropriate? But as we looked into the, uh, to the Psalms for today, Psalms 148, 149, and 150, um, and we acknowledge that they are Psalms of praise, largely. But we also saw some nuanced messages and ideas in these Psalms that really um, resonated with us, and we felt like, once again, uh, God was giving us a gift through the Psalms to uh, give us some insight into his perspective on these things, uh, giving us a larger narrative and, uh, and some specific thoughts um, that really, I think, are uh, comforting and strengthening in, in times that we're in now. Uh, but again, they are, they are psalms of praise. And we have to ask the question, is now a time for praise? Uh, this week has been a cascading series of horrible events and extremely dark news. 40 million people have filed for unemployment, according to this week's figures. And the last figures I read, 40% of those are people making under $40,000 a year. This week, we officially passed 100,000 dead from COVID-19 in the United States which is more than the combined totals of people that died in all of the wars that the United States have been in over the last 60 years. And it's believed that that number of 102,000, or I think is what it is right now, it's believed to be understated by 30 or even 40,000 people, so the numbers are much greater. And in the midst of all this, George Floyd was murdered on Monday by members of the Minneapolis Police Department which has led to an entire week of protests, riots, and more bloodshed, injustice, and violence. America is still paying for its sins. In commenting on the Civil War, which scholars now believe caused the deaths of over 750,000 people, President Abraham Lincoln said this, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. But contrary to many people's uninformed minds, 
the Civil War did not end the problem of slavery or of the greed and racism that fed it. Slavery turned into indentured servitude during Reconstruction, systematic oppression in government and in the workplace, the redlining of major northern cities and the migration of blacks from the south, the formation of the black ghettos in large cities, discriminatory policing that either let crime run free in minority neighborhoods or disproportionately incarcerated blacks, the destruction of the black family, the economic devastation brought on by the breakup of families, the inequalities of education and opportunity that added to the economic disparities, the disparities of the corrections institutions that discriminated against people of color, that further led to economic disparity and the symptoms of mental health and addiction problems associated with the social, economic, and political injustices that have been committed against people of color for over 400 years. No, the Civil War was not the end of God's judgment upon America for the sins of slavery. Sins are still being committed, and we are paying for our past and current sins. Lincoln believed that the Civil War was God's judgment upon America for the sin of slavery. From a biblical perspective, you can see that there is a ton of evidence that shows that wars within nations and wars with other nations in the scriptures were the means through which God did bring judgment upon nations. Lincoln may have indeed been right in ascribing the war as an act of God upon a sinful and deserving nation. So is the war that we are seeing played out on the streets of the Twin Cities and two dozen other cities across the country, are these an act of God's judgment? Who can say? I'm not a prophet. Regardless, I think we can still say that we are paying for our former and present sins of greed and prejudice and racism. We as individuals, as a church, as a city, and as a nation, need to confess and we need to repent of our sins. And until we do, we will continue to pay the penalty for them and the sins of the generations that preceded us. So I return to the question that I asked, is now, is now a time to praise God? Shouldn't now be a time of calling for vengeance? Shouldn't now be a time of calling for repentance? Interestingly and timely enough, again, I think that these psalms have been gifts from God to us over these months. The concluding psalms integrate these two concepts, the praising of God and extending and executing the vengeance of God. They belong together. And what we're going to see in these psalms is that they are enhanced by bringing them together. Psalms, psalm 148 is essentially a psalm calling all of the creation of God to praise the Lord. To praise is to, is to make an expression of greatness, to express the excellence of something else. And all of creation is called to express the greatness and the excellence and the wonder of God. Nothing is exempted. Animate objects, inanimate objects, everything is called to give praise to the Lord. And he gives several reasons that all of these things should praise the Lord. The first 
which is a consistent theme throughout all of Scripture, God created everything in heaven and on earth. And after he created everything and upon seeing evil, he, he decreed that, that his creation would no longer be destroyed, which is another reason for us to praise God, that the creation of God would endure forever. The expression of power, the expression of God's power and created the heavens and the earth and everything in it is also another reason why we praise God. <clears throat> his greatness, his authority, his power uh, is alone. He is unique. He alone is worthy of such praise, and we are to recognize him for that uniqueness. The psalm takes a bit of an, a shift towards the end that, that moves the reader to recognize one particular act of God deserving of our unique praise. The text says that he has raised up a horn for his people, and the reader is called to praise God for raising up this horn. Those who believe in him. Now, Old Testament writers use the imagery of a horn as a symbol of, of ruling power. The imagery is abundant throughout the prophets and the apocalyptic literature. The horn is the promised descendant of David, the promised future king of David, uh, that we ultimately know, as the scriptures reveal, to be the person Jesus Christ who would eventually establish peace forever, not only for Israel, but for the nations of the world through the might and through the power of his rule. When we move into Psalm 149, the call to praise the Lord narrows. Everything in creation is not called to praise the Lord here. It's just the people of God, the nation of Israel in this context. And the psalmist calls all of Israel to gather together to praise God and to make glad uh, expressions of music for their maker. They are called to dance and make melody with the, the tambourine and the lyre, musical instruments at the time. The psalmist then gives his reasons in this one for, for the call to praise. He says that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. We are to praise God because he delights in us. We are, a, we are a treasure to him. And in God's pleasure of us, he beautifies us. He makes us more beautiful through the salvation that he gives us. Now, we often read uh, the word salvation. We think of, you know, I'm going to go to heaven someday. But the word salvation here is, is not that. It's the, it's the deliverance that God executes into our lives that, that saves us from over, being overcome by trouble. God has the ability to bring his power into our lives. It says those who are humble to save us, to save us. This beautifies us and raises us, the scripture says it raises us to an experience of exaltation and glory. And that those who are humble and, and, and recognize the pleasure that God has in them and that follow him and that believe him, it says that they go to bed because of his beautiful and glorious saving of them saving them from being overcome by the troubles of this world. It says that they go to bed in joyful singing. Go to bed in joyful singing. They go to bed in peace, and they go to bed in happiness. The psalm then takes a really dramatic shift, and this is, this is why we, we really picked this, stay with the plan of using these psalms for this, this Sunday's message. It takes a dramatic shift 
Other psalms have taken dramatic shifts, calling out to God for deliverance in the midst of, they praise God, but they're in a time of trouble, and they ask God to save them during this time of trouble. But this is not like that. This psalm says to praise God at the same time as when they are preparing themselves to be vessels of God's vengeance upon the nations. It says that praises are in their throat. They are, they are, they are proclaiming the greatness of God for all that he has created, for finding pleasure in them, for saving them and beautifying them in their lives through his salvation. So the pra- these praises are in their throats, but then it says that double-edged swords are in their hands. And it's specific as to what they're going to be using these swords for. They are going to execute vengeance on the nations. They are going to bring punishment to the peoples. They're going to bind kings in chains. They're going to put the nobles in fetters of iron. They are going to execute the judgment that has been written against them. Then the psalm ends with a statement saying that the work of executing the Lord's vengeance is not only something that they're doing while they're praising God, it's actually something that brings honor to them. The execution of God's vengeance is an honorable exercise to participate in, which then also elicits praise to God. The final psalm, Psalm 150, is short. It is, calling re- it's, it is calling readers to, to praise God again for his mighty deeds, his acts of deliverance for the nation of Israel throughout its history. And then he calls all of the bands to pull out all of their instruments and to play them exceptionally loud. I think of, uh, you know, when, whenever you watch a, a fireworks display on the 4th of July, they save the biggest and the loudest and the brightest for the end. It's short, but it's what everybody enjoys. That's Psalm 150. That's Psalm 150. That's how the Psalms end, with this loud, exuberant expression of praise to God. They've called out all of the bands, they've called out all of the instruments, and it ends in this short, abrupt abrupt declaration of praise. Now, the calls for praise throughout these Psalms, in conjunction with the raising up of this horn and the carrying out of God's vengeance, as I have said, I think that they are extremely relevant for our day. And there's a few points that I want to make. The first one is that evil does exist. If we look at the the idea of evil within the context of the text of Scripture, the evils that seem to bring about the judgment and the vengeance of God upon nations is primarily centered around the worship of other gods, which the scriptures call idolatry. But it doesn't stop there. Idolatry leads to expressions of sin that bring great harm to people. And this this gives warrant then for God to execute his judgment and his vengeance upon the nations. And I want to point out what the, what, the, what the law and the prophets and the writings really draw out as, as what these sins are that bring God's judgment. The first one, sexual immorality and adultery, which leads to the breakdown of family unity, security, and economic well-being. The second one is systemic, economic, and political oppression. Oppression of the poor and the immigrant 
by the ruling and merchant classes, which also leads to the breakdown of society, the breakdown of family, due to the income disparities and the ability for the majority of the people to sustain their livelihoods. Third, now these are sins that God brings judgment upon the nations for. The third, injustice in the courts that favor the wealthy and the powerful, resulting in the further oppression of minorities and the poor. Number four, human sacrifice of children, which reflects the broader exploitation of children for economic purposes. And the fifth one is unchecked violence and lawlessness for selfish gain. These are the sins that you see throughout all of Scripture that God sees and brings judgment upon the nations for. We all would agree that these evils exist, that they, tell, that they cause untold amounts of pain, and that they need to be stopped. I think that we would also agree that nations and cultures can embody these sins. I read this week in an article from the New Inquiry, it's called In Defense of Looting, that essentially said that the United States is 400 years of barbaric, white supremacist, colonial, and genocidal history. Now, it didn't say that those things were present in the history of the United States. It says that those things are the history of the United States. Now, I don't agree that those are the things that uniquely define the United States. I think that the United States certainly has done all of those things, but it doesn't uniquely define them. There are a lot of good things in the United States as well. And whether or not these things are who we are, are they our identifying things, whether we, whether we have that opinion or not, the presence of them, which is irrefutable, will eventually lead to our demise if they are not repented from. It is historical fact. When these kinds of things exist and they go on and they go on generation after generation after generation, it leads to the, the downfall of society. The second point, so one, evils exist and they need to be stopped. The second point is that, the ev- that evil resides in human beings, not just in cultures, not in societies, not just in, in these large categories, but they exist in us as people. And there will always be people that embody these evils and that do not repent from them. And those people must be judged. Now, in reading the commentaries for these passages over this past week, uh, several of the scholars noted that in, in modern American and European com- commentaries, they, they generally have a, a strong disapproval uh, of, this, of these passages that talk about the vengeance of God being executed against the nations. Earlier commentators didn't, nor do commentators outside of the American and European context. We Western moderns are hesitant to call evil for what it is, and we are hesitant to call people to execute vengeance on those who do evil unless those people are the other, whom we already look down, discriminate against, 
incarcerate and destroy, as seen in the inequality and oppression, seen in the incarceration statistics that reflect an overwhelming policing bias against minorities and the poor. And that maybe has been the reason for our unwillingness to fully address the evils of greed, racism, and prejudice that have plagued this continent for 400 years. Why are we so afraid to call evil for what it is and to hold people accountable for those actions? The longing for justice in the face of injustice and oppression is a valid longing. You see it throughout all of Scripture. It is not wrong to want justice. It is not wrong to want vengeance. To participate in the execution of vengeance upon those who are guilty of evil is valid. It's a clear message of this psalm. And it says even in this psalm that that it can be an experience of honor. Something that we find ourselves to be exalted in. And I think that that a, a lot of the images that we have seen over the past week, you can see this. Rioters who raise their fists standing on the rubble of destroyed buildings are, are experiencing an honor that they feel as they see themselves victorious over their oppressors. Can anyone doubt the validity of the experience of honor and glory when perceived sources of evil have been put down, never to do evil again? I think we all have to acknowledge that that type of honor exists. So we have, we've addressed what is a valid and reasonable desire to see and even participate in the, in the execution of justice against evil. But how can that desire coexist at the same time as we praise God? How can we sing praises to God and at the same time hold swords and wield them against the forces of evil? And this brings me to my third and final point. The vengeance executed by the peoples of Israel against their enemies was not first and foremost a personal vengeance but a vengeance of God written down. It was a judgment declared, like our, our, uh, in our court system, hearings and trials end with a declaration of the judgment and of the sentence, and that has what God has written that down. And Israel was to be the means through which those judgments were executed. I've been reading the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah lately, and the written judgments against all of the nations are weighty. They are dark. You read for them too long. You just kind of get in this, this place of feeling under this, this, this weight of condemnation and judgment. And even though throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of using the nation of Israel as a means of judgment against the nations, the prophets also speak extensively of God's judgment against Israel for its violation of his laws and of the perpetration of the same offenses, sometimes even in in worse cases as those of the other godless nations. Upon reading the prophets, you have to come away with a sense that none can stand before the judgment of God. There's no nation saved from the judgment of God. There's no individual that can escape the judgment of God for their actions. 
We may long for vengeance against the evils of society. We may long for revenge against those who have hurt us. We may long for vengeance against the perpetrators of injustice against innocent people. And we may even long to be among those who execute the judgment. But I think we have to ask the question, are we ready to face the judgment and the vengeance of God ourselves? Are we all innocent of oppressing people through our words and actions? Are we innocent of sexual immorality? Are we innocent of greed and materialism? Are we innocent of hate? Are we innocent of theft and lying? Are we innocent of loving pleasure and abdicating responsibility? Are we innocent of undermining our own marriages and families? Are we innocent of prejudice, bias, and bribery? Are we innocent of paying people unfair wages or of exploiting vulnerable people? I think if we were all honest with ourselves, we would have to acknowledge that in no way, or at least in some ways, none of us are innocent. And so in this place of guilt, who are we to put ourselves in judgment over others? Who are we to consider ourselves as valid executors of justice? Well, Psalm 149 provides a small clue as to what would drive the simultaneous urges to praise God with the urge to also seek vengeance. But to do so and to see it in a a righteous way, in a good way. How can we bring these two ideas together? Verse 4 of 149 says that the Lord takes pleasure in his people and that he adorns the humble with salvation. The people of God who can sing his praises and to consider themselves uh, as executors of his judgment are called the humble. What does it mean to be humble? Well, generally it means to consider yourself lowly, to consider yourself undeserving. Literally, it means to be, to means to be bowed down, to recognize that you are of lowly status before others and before God. And in the New Testament, we see that to be humble is to think of others as better than you. And that includes morally. That others are better morally than you. Humble people recognize their own weaknesses. They recognize their own ugliness. They recognize their own sins. They recognize their own moral failures. They recognize the need for their own salvation. And they come humbly before God in search of it. They don't seek it for themselves. They come to God. The text then says that God beautifies them through his deliverance, deliverance from the ugliness of their own shortcomings and their sins, and deliverance from being overcome by the troubles of this world. It's very important to understand that God does not promise to save us from all of the troubles of the world. He promises to give us the ability to overcome them. In the midst of the trouble, we can overcome. We can experience a sense of peace, a sense of happiness, a sense of prosperity, even in the midst of our experiences that are deeply troubling. God brings the humble to a place of glory. And this captures the idea of happiness and prosperity for the people of God that we've seen throughout all of the Psalms. And the people, these, these humble people triumph. 
These people that have put themselves low, God raises up. They triumph in the experience of glory for God has delivered them. He is giving them, he is giving them a sense of peace and happiness and prosperity and honor and exaltation in the midst of their trouble. This then turns into a, a genuine expression of heartfelt praise toward God. These are the humble people that this psalm calls to execute the vengeance of God. But this experience of God's deliverance, this experience of God's grace, this experience of coming to God in humility, to be saved from his judgment, to experience his mercy, to experience his deliverance, it transforms our longings for vengeance. It transforms our desire to retaliate. Predominantly, within every single one of us as a human being, vengeance is energized by a desire to repay others, to, to hurt others for the hurts that they have caused us. We've experienced pain from others. We want them to experience the same pain, if not more. But the path of personal vengeance will not bring us to the place of beauty and happiness and prosperity that this psalm describes. It will not bring us the enduring glory that we long for. It may bring us a short-term experience of glory, like the immediate bursts found in substance abuse or sexual immorality or in lying or in stealing or in gluttony. But all we will have to show for it is a mounting pile of rubble that is our life. To this very issue, Martin Luther King Jr. said this, the potential beauty of human life is constantly made ugly by man's ever-recurring song of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of revenge. Man has never risen above the injunction of the lex talionis, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. In spite of the fact that the law of revenge solves no social problems, men continue to follow its disastrous leading. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued this self-defeating death path. Rather than leading to beauty, happiness, and prosperity, retaliation only leads to greater suffering for ourselves and for others. But we can't deny the longing for vengeance. We can't deny these urges within us for justice. We cannot deny the longings that are within us to see the evils of society and the evils of individuals judged, and we certainly can't abide these evils to go unchecked. This is one of the reasons why God establishes governments, to remove the role of executing vengeance at the hand of, a, of individuals and puts that responsibility into the hand of societies on the basis of laws. But as we well know, these governments and the people within them are sinners themselves, capable of great injustices and of using the power of law and the power of government for their own selfish ambitions 
exponentially multiplies the ability to oppress and bring harm to people. But the failures of government and the failures of law enforcement cannot push us to take the law into our own hands, for again, that is a form of retaliation. But nor can they push us to the point of throwing out the law and throwing out government altogether, for in that case, there would be no means of identifying and judging evil. Everyone would, would be able to simply do what is right in their own eyes, and the world would be left in chaos, left to the whims of those who are able to accumulate power. And there are some who long for that. And I think it's in this window where we can see a balanced perspective that brings all of these tensions and desires and realities together. We long for deliverance from the sins and oppression of others, but we also recognize that we ourselves are guilty of the same crimes and deserve the same penalties that we wish upon others. We see unchecked evil in the world around us and we long for those in power to do something, but we see that often these entities are the greatest forces of injustice and oppression themselves. What can be done? It all comes down to one thing. Who and what we see as the horn in our lives? Who is the ruling power? That's what the horn, again, as I said earlier, throughout Scripture, the horn is this, this symbol, this representation of ruling power. We have to ask ourselves, who is the horn in our lives? If we ourselves are the horn, we will never leave the cycle of retaliation and revenge and the wreckage that it brings nor will we ever be able to solve the growing reality within our own consciences that, it, that, that are telling us that we are ultimately guilty as well. That guilt that oftentimes drives our anger and our desire and our longing for revenge and retaliation. If we see governments as ultimately the horn, then we will grow bitter at the disappointment of their eventual failure to execute justice fairly. They will never be the horn that we need. When we recognize that God has raised up the true horn, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of these things come together. The sins of others against us have been paid for through his shed blood. We cannot doubt the appropriateness of that payment. The debts have been paid. We must acknowledge that. Whatever we hold against others for their sins against us has been dealt with. Jesus has settled those accounts. And this is good news because it also means that the sins that we've committed against others, the sins that we deserve judgment and vengeance and retaliation for, those have also been paid for. Our hatred against others and our guilty consciences can be cleansed. And from an experiential perspective, we can abide by the instructions of God to submit to and obey our government authorities because God does intend for them to work in this world to punish evil and to protect the poor and the righteous and the oppressed. But when they fail us and when they oppress us, we can find hope that ultimately our deliverance is not going to be through them. They're not going to deliver us of all, all, from all of our troubles. 
And when we know God and come to him humbly, we recognize that that's not what deliverance means anyway. Deliverance is that we are, have the ability in our minds and in our consciences to enjoy through his spirit the peace and the freedom and the power and the joy of knowing God and dwelling in his presence. And there is no place on earth, as we've seen in earlier Psalms, where we can't experience that presence of God. It is a dear thing. It is a powerful thing. Our longings for, the, for justice will eventually be fulfilled. The book of Revelation, the last part of the story of, of God in the Bible, portrays images and reports the prayers and the callings of the saints over the centuries. I see these, these, these cries of, these, of the protesters. They are, they are ultimately prayers, in a way, asking God to bring justice. The saints have been praying those prayers for centuries, asking God to bring justice to those who have oppressed and murdered them. Well, the story of the Bible concludes with the true horn, with Jesus Christ. Finally, and we all long for it, executing vengeance upon those who didn't accept Jesus' payment for their sins, preferring to pay for it themselves. All of the evils of this world in ourselves and as individuals and in society, will be judged and eliminated once for all. That victory was secured on the cross. And that experience is the promise of the future for those who humbly come before God and acknowledge that he is salvation and not them and not the government. And that is why we can praise God. And that is why we need to praise God now because we are looking for and longing for the justice and the judgment that only Jesus can provide. Let me pray. Lord God, the world is broken and always has been, but you love it. And you love it so much that you sent your son into this world to pay for its injustices and he overcame. And in that overcoming, God, you've invited us to overcome with him, to believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God, we're thankful that we have hope in the true horn, the true horn that will return and execute power and execute judgment and bring this world to a place of peace and eternal prosperity and joy. All to your praise and to your glory. In your son's name we pray.